0: This is Structure, the podcast. I'm Sam Ward,
1: and I'm Michelle
0: Rose. We talk to the designers
1: and minds behind the most creative products in the outdoor industry.
0: This week on Structure, we talk to Martina Brimmer, co-founder and creative director of Swift Industries, a Seattle-based bicycle bag company. She tells us about her transition from maker to designer.
1: First, we want to start by just saying welcome. Thank you for being part of our podcast series. And I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your background and how that all trailed into starting Swift Industries.
2: Yeah, well, thanks you guys for having me on. It's really a delight to be able to share all of this with you guys. My name is Martina Brimmer, and I'm the founder of Swift Industries. We're um a small bicycle bag company up in Seattle, Washington. We manufacture all of our goods in-house, and over the years have become actually quite a bit more than just a soft goods manufacturer. Um, We've really created a pretty vibrant and close-knit community around our company, which has been amazing to watch grow. My personal background is actually... um, in small-scale agriculture. I was on the track to becoming a, a farmer, I thought, but always had an itch for making things. And I will also say that um, it's very, very recent that I've turned a corner with my identity a little bit. I never thought of myself as a designer. Even having this company for six and seven years almost, I really thought of myself as a maker and, and as a cyclist. And I think that that stems out of this craft revival that I experienced, you know, in my early twenties, mid twenties. My peers were really engaging in a lot of um, making and tinkering and learning how to blacksmith and forge and all all kinds of things. This this handcraft revival came up, and um, it was a really natural fit for me. Um, I went to a school called Waldorf for my early childhood education and was always really encouraged to take up a lot of different mediums. And I loved that. I, I actually can't stop making things. It's an insatiable itch of mine. And um, when I'm away from it for more than actually a day or two, I start to either start drawing out sketches of the things I ought to be making or I jump at my sewing machine or um, find some avenue to kind of get all these ideas out. So it was um, maybe not surprising to those around me when the agriculture thing started to kind of go to the wayside a little bit more. And I became really, really interested in sewing. And again, not, not design. I was just really satisfied with the act of sewing and assembling fabrics and textiles and notions and buckles and parts and, and bringing all of this dimensional functional life to those materials.
1: And how would you define that? How um, You were saying you, know, you didn't see yourself as a designer, but more of a maker. Yeah. Would you say in your head now there's a distinction between the two at all? Yeah,
2: I, I think that there's maybe more of an inclination now to, to sit down and, and think through the, the processes, um, everything from creating a shape and bringing that to life all the way through the manufacturing, the sewing process, the assembly process, really being much more mindful of end function.
0: It kind of sounds like the distinction also has to do a little bit with the scale of what you're making in terms of making something for your own personal enjoyment versus making, you know, a commercial product that that you're going to bring to the marketplace. Is that maybe part of the distinction?
2: That's certainly a part of it. I think that it's almost just about experience. I was young and impulsive, and I would get this hair idea, and I wouldn't sit down and draw anything out. I would just take the materials and fly with it. And now there's something much more calculated that I love, and perhaps it's a sign of maturing, of getting a little bit older, also understanding the complexity of shape in a really different way, I feel a lot more comfortable now with stepping back and taking a lot more time with my projects. And I think good design requires time and lots of iterations and a lot of modifications and more of a sense of certainly my aesthetics signature. But I'm, I'm a lot more interested and excited and focused on the, the user experience now.
0: How did you take those kind of those maker tendencies and and transition into starting a company and then especially doing that at a time where, where the country is sliding into a recession?
2: I think that we were like re- young and like really punk rock and living super on the cheap and never thought that we were starting a company. I was working, I was sewing for a company called Reload, which was a messenger bag company here in Seattle that was most well-known for putting applique on messenger bags. <laughs> and so that's, that's very much how it started. I had an opportunity to buy my sewing machine from Reload when that company closed and some bolts of fabric. And I got a job that... I only had to show up for work for three and a half hours a day. And that left me and my ridiculous longing to make things all day long, you know, kind of like hold up in this basement room in this punk house in Seattle, just, just messing around and playing with stuff and and making myself bags. And then we would go out, Jason and I would go out on bike tour and, post some photos here and there and then folks would be like hey those are pretty cool bags could we get some some of those bags (laughs) and we really we started just making one bag at a time I don't even know that we started with patterns you know I would cut them out like from scratch almost every time I mean it's it's terribly laborious I don't (laughs) know how we managed to do it but but it wasn't we weren't taking it seriously you know and then and then came somebody who was like, um, hey, have you ever heard of a blog? You know, you could post this stuff on a blog and put a PayPal button on your site. And and then I was like, oh, yeah, we could try that. And then all of a sudden people started buying our bags from like all over the U.S. And we were like, what is going on here?
0: How did people what year even this?
2: know? This was 2008.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's and, like all of a
0: sudden you have an e-commerce business just –
2: practically overnight and I can't believe I mean honestly like we you know we shot the worst photos in the worst (laughs) light and and people bought our bags and went on tour and returned photographs and got in touch about their trips and where their bags were and and it was so fun and I realized I was just having a blast and that that was really what I wanted to do. And I held another job up until almost two years ago. I was working in a local high school, and it was fantastic. But at some point, it was really clear that I felt my attention was really divided. And, and I would be out there just kind of lamenting that I wasn't at my sewing machine. And, and so, you know, in context of, of the recession and, and the economy I would say that I was so naive, you know, so young and out of like such deep counterculture roots. I obviously like I, I saw the greater picture of the recession and I saw it affect a lot of people. Um, but it wasn't on my mind with Swift Industries. Um, and that and I think that's simply testament to how this quirky business began. Um, there's a lot of ways to start a business. Um, Ours was likely the least calculated (laughs) 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 Um, and really grew very organically. Um, And we've, uh, you know, to to say that it was less calculated than perhaps other startups are and other other companies begin – does not take away from the amount of work that we put into it. And Jason and I are in total agreement. that If we started a company today, knowing what we know now, we would do it uh, completely differently. Mm. Um, and that's kind of like, that's the beauty of, of ex- having these experiences. Well, there's so much
1: about timing. When you talked about 2008, making these bags and suddenly having this ability to show them and do a PayPal button and, and <laughs> sell them. I flashed backward 10 years to 1998 when I was making bags, and I was making yoga mat bags. I thought about the struggle that I went through. It was a totally different time. There was no PayPal buttons. There was no place to go on the internet. No yet. websites. There was no websites at the time. Um, we made things and peddled them door to door to see if people would sell them locally in their stores. You
0: got the. You, it was in the yeah. Willamette Week, you know, Christmas gift guide one year. Yeah. And that was like (laughs) that was the most marketing that you know that ever came from it.
1: It just it was very challenging for people you know before this time period to do what you did. The recession hit, and I think there was something that really blossomed with technology, social media, the recession, and a a new generation coming in, and that was just timing.
0: And, And I wanted to to ask a little bit more about that decision to do everything yourselves. I love that. Was there ever a point where you, you know, had a choice to make about whether to bring in outside help or farm things out and, and you know, kind of what's the philosophy behind, you know, continuing to do everything yourselves?
2: Yeah. You know, uh, wow. You guys, this year has been one of the most challenging years for Swift as we have faced gr- growth in a, in a really in really unexpected ways. And I think um, it's in the face of growth especially that we've had to look at all of the different directions we could take with Swift. Mm. There's never a, a day where it feels like there are closed doors to the possibility of having other folks manufacture for us, So many of our conversations this year as we were trying to understand our capacity as a small crew were like, okay, so so we we would kind of go in like these concentric circles of scale and geography. So, okay, so there's us in Seattle. We'll call that the epicenter. And then we could think of foreign manufacturing. That's like kind of like the the at this point what feels like the furthest thing away that we can in a lot of ways imaginatively conceive of and geographically it's the furthest possible thing right takes it come the manufacturing process completely away from our fingertips right and then there's everything that can happen in between, and as we've been, you know, struggling a lot with these questions of growth and scale and what we are capable of as a small team, we we were really deliberating, you know, what does it mean to have portions of our bags made in Seattle? Um, should we farm out just, you know, these small things like strap manufacturing? You know, those that all those. Freaking bar tax, you know, (laughs) like, like all that stuff. Like, do we, do we need to do that in house? Is there, is there somewhere even in, in Seattle? Is there somewhere in, in Colorado or Utah who uh, should be doing that stuff? And um, over the course of the summer as an entire team, no one was exempt from these conversations. Everybody from the person who cuts for us to the person who's running shipping, Um, At some point, you know, we looked at a lot of these different options and we spoke to all kinds of different people from consultants, um, big scale consultants to um, folks who are producing in Seattle who could be of assistance to us. And at some point we all looked at each other and we were just like, that's not Swift's narrative. We are deeply passionate and really excited to be involved in the entire process. And so perhaps as we grow, what that looks like is that we, we ex- expand our team, but we would really like that team to remain in-house. So maybe um, we bring on finally somebody who is just an ace at marketing or um, really, really loves systems analysis or, you know, all of the different facets that need to happen to make Swift Industries Thrive, but we would really love to continue to have all of those things um, kind of in one bundle and under one roof. Bar tax and all. Bar tax and all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, right now we're in a really, I think, a really inspiring place. There are five people in our company. It's very small. And every single person involved in our company is obsessed with bicycles Mm -hmm. that brings this enthusiasm that is kind of relentless like um when we're not making things for cycling we're cycling you know every possible free moment um and that's shared across the board and I think that's really unique yeah um it is
0: I mean, you were talking earlier about concentric circles, and I imagine, you know, if you extend the circles even further, that group just naturally extends to your customer base.
2: Yeah, totally. And, and I think we have a really, really cool relationship with our customer base. We get to send our bags all over the place. Um, but I think because of social media, uh, there's a really different kind of connectivity people do use these avenues to genuinely connect with with each other Mm -hmm. and and that it is kind of it's it's a path to actually meet in person pretty often you know and so it's been so fun to be able to say like you know hey we're going to be in Portland for the next four days we'll be hanging out at this bar or doing this ride uh all of our cut customers in Portland, friends, you know, whoever just show up, come meet us. People show up and it's, it's awesome. It's it so much fun. and, and um, It seems like it
0: comes naturally from, you know, from your love of cycling and from your friends and your communities and your customers, you know, everyone loves to do this activity. It's not yeah. just like, it's not necessarily about the, the products. It's about the community that you form by, by going out and having these activities out in nature and having these experiences and sharing them with one another.
2: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Through our shop, we've got what we call the get lost Academy. So we run like a, in the winter when things are a little bit slower on the manufacturing end, then we've got some time to, um, get folks in and, and do a whole series on bicycle adventuring. Mm. Um, and that's so much fun. Um, just to do kind of this um, classroom series at Swift. Mm -hmm. Last year, we did kind of like an international call-out for folks to go bike camping on solstice. And got people all over the world, regardless of whether they were um, on a winter solstice or a summer solstice, depending on what part of the world they were, <laughs> uh, what, you know, uh, relative to the equator where they were. Mm-hmm. Folks went out and, and had this kind of like unified experience under the stars, I suppose. It's so powerful. Uh, it's so fun. It's so fun to geek out on that stuff. I took a group of like 30 folks out to just a campground, not even 30 miles from Seattle. And we were all sitting around the campfire and we were like, wow, there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there having this experience this evening. This is so fun. You know, that's so great. Well, who um, would, who yeah. would
1: you say then is, uh, who's your customer? Who's your customer? And as you describe them, like, how do they influence your product and what you make and how you make it?
2: So I think for the most part, our customer is, um, we'll put them right into a tidy box real fast. Um, In a lot of ways, I see myself really reflected in our customer base. Yeah, I see folks kind of in mid-20s to mid-40s predominantly.
1: It's a good range. We're still in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 20. So yeah, I think 25 to 45. And I think... Predominantly folks who are living in cities who um, are wanting to get out of the city. A lot of people who are lifestyle cyclists, so folks who are commuting by bike and using it also as transportation. But then also really excited to be um, using bicycles as a means to get you know, a little bit more into adventuring, whether that's bike touring or kind of this newer, um, pretty fun wave of bicycle adventuring that gets a lot more remote. It's not necessarily mountain bike touring, but but kind of kind of teases with that a little bit. So we're starting to see this amazing um kind of passionate turn towards combining The outdoor, the remote outdoor skills that are needed in like backcountry travel Mm -hmm. being combined with bike touring. And that's been super fun to watch. As we are watching folks get more and more into more remote touring that calls for more rugged gear, we've made a really tangible change in how we design our bags. When we began Swift, panniers were missing a really specific aesthetic when we started off. So when we started, the panniers that were on the market were primary colors and looked really technical outdoor. Yep. Both and, nodding over here. Yeah. And we were young kids in the city who... We're maybe starting to move away from wanting to use messenger bags and, you know, needed a little bit more capacity. And we were like, really curious about getting kind of pushing out of the city a little bit more to do these camping trips. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted something that looked really cool and different and a little sassier and had really different lines and, and uh, materials than we were seeing coming out of, like, the kind of more European-influenced touring scene. Right. Wow. Um, and that didn't exist. I mean, we really, we didn't know where to look. And um, and so we were like, well, I guess this is, it's our job to make it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we took a lot of the same lines as we had been using making messenger bags and started to apply them to panniers. And you can see it so, so specifically it like really shines in our roll top model. And the roll top basically has adopted the aesthetic from the urban messenger scene and put it into a pannier form. And we used bright, bold colors. We, we just got a lot more playful And a lot less technical looking. But we're also seeing a shift in our design now, too. You know, along with being adamant that I was a maker and not a designer, I was also really adamant that I was not producing gear at the beginning. And I was like, you know, I don't identify as I don't identify with this gear stuff because at that time gear was so technical in my, in my mind. And that was not an aesthetic that was very inspiring to me. I didn't want to put mesh on our stuff and, you know, just this, you know, every a million zippers everywhere and all that. And now I think that we're, we're also kind of taking a little bit of a turn and I'm really interested in coming at gear design with these, other influences, the the change of colors, like much more clean lines, using uh, now more technical fabrics than we did in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I saw that you you stopped using waxed canvas, uh, and, and you're moving more towards like Cordura and other technical fabrics.
2: Yeah, yeah, and so we um, we love waxed canvas, and it was really interesting to kind of understand that especially with the rise of the heritage aesthetic that was really, really popular for a time. And we worked with it. And there were so many instances where it just wasn't the right... Our bags were not the right application for the wax canvas. We would see wear in really critical places. And once cotton starts to wear, it's very hard to repair. Um, And so as we were... Really looking to the longevity of our products and looking at what bags we started to see coming in for repairs. It was predominantly wax canvas that was coming back. And we feel pretty strongly that we want to make things that last a long time. It was really really bumming us out to send out this material that people had chosen and they were really excited about. And we were like, man, we hope that lasts. <laughs> yeah and that that just like that didn't you know and and that that's relative you know we we're confident that wax canvas will last three, five, six years, but is that long enough in some ways i don't I don't know if that's long enough
1: that's a good question,
2: you know you think of fast fashion, you think of consumerism, you think the way that of the way that that companies build to turn profits, you know we question a lot of those things, yeah. Um, and so a wax canvas is beautiful, and it 's actually a dream to work with because it folds and creases so beautifully under our machines hmm. but ultimately it 's not correct for our use and it's It was actually really cool to come to that
0: yeah, I mean that really <sighs> speaks to the point that you were making earlier about that shift from maker to designer, you know, whereas yeah. before maybe you're reacting to that material for all the reasons that you just said, you know, because your customers want it and it's really great to work with. But when you consider the ultimate goals and what your ultimate vision is for that product, then you have to make that decision that that's not the right material to use.
2: The vision has expanded. Absolutely. Um, we just released a line of complete x uh, randonneering bags and, uh, we're really, really excited because we've brought the lightest Randonneering bag onto the market. And um, that feels really, really killer. Randonneering is a form of cycling, kind of a little bit of a, a culture within cycling. It's these long, long distance rides that folks go on 200 to 600 kilometers in one stretch. So the the Randonneering bag is a really cool... Design because it has to be something that is easily accessed while you're cycling. Basically, the bag needs to facilitate continuous cycling. The bag should not be the reason that you're stopping and losing time points. Right. Um, So you need to have access to all of the things that you might need over the course of 500 miles. um, Right kind of at arm's length. And it's a really, really cool design that fundamentally has not changed for 150 years, hmm. 100 years. Let's call it 100 years. So those, those bags have always been made out of wax canvas and leather. And so here we come uh, wanting to see what happens when one applies, a, you know, a modern textile, a much more durable set of textiles to this bag. How much lighter can we get it without in any way compromising the function? We had so much fun playing with that this year.
0: What was your process for for finding the materials that you wanted to work with?
2: We watch a lot. You know, we kind of scour. We look at a lot of different bag makers are using. And then we test things, you know, (laughs) feverishly, uh, which, you know, in a lot of ways is a good excuse to go out riding a lot. When we started to become really interested in XPAC, um, we started off by just making, you know, sets of bags to send off with as many folks uh, who we knew would just trash those bags and then bring them back and see what was going to what happened to them and how they kind of held up to the challenges. And so I, I actually think that that's one of the biggest limitations for me. Uh, Because of like my lack of um, conventional training, I have so little exposure to getting these resources and learning more about textiles. That for me at this point, it's really been about like snooping around and poking around. And honestly, we'll do field trips to REI. (laughs) And I think that the staff at REI sometimes thinks we're crazy because they'll find three or four people just opening up bags. And we sit there and we scrutinize the bags (laughs) and we look at all of the different materials that are being used. So, you know, it's, it's for us, it's a lot of voyeurism. And then we start to be like, ah, like, you know, we, we kind of feel things out and go to websites and try to try to hunt down textiles. It's, it's been really challenging. Yeah. There's actually a lot of snooping happens. Amongst yeah. a lot of designers.
0: Oh, so Sometimes
1: I'm like, gosh, this
2: is ridiculous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they can kind of actually pick people out pretty good at the retail locations now. They'll come up yeah. and say, yeah, what company are you from? <laughs> so funny. I was just going to say, would you do a little description of what XPAC is?
2: So XPAC is a pretty cool textile that was uh, really innovated out of the uh, sailing industry. And it's really, really abrasion resistant. From what I understand, the outdoor industry, soft goods manufacturers approached Dimension Polyant, who is the manufacturer. And they said, hey, listen, you guys have this incredible textile that you guys have developed. We need a couple of tweaks here and there. And then it could be really ready for, for kind of this whole other marketplace. So I think, you know, they came in and they really looked at these very, very minor changes with uh, the XPAC textile and put on some laminates for waterproofing and looked at maybe more spirit, specific uh, abrasion resistance for bag manufacturing and did a really wonderful job of adapting um, What, again, was kind of born out of the sailcloth industry to make it really a a great medium for the outdoor bag manufacturing scene. And, you know, the one of the first packs that I saw it on was a Dana Designs pack from quite a while ago. Oh, yeah. Um, And I I started to hear about X-Pack fairly recently, maybe about two or three years ago. It started to come onto our radar because folks who were starting to do a lot more bike packing um, really started to ad- adopt it. And, um, and then it kind of came onto our radar, and we were like, oh, what is this textile that folks are using? And I just assumed that that was the beginning of XPAC. And then when I stumbled across these Dana Designs packs, realize that it's been on the market in that capacity for quite some time so it seems like it's a textile that's um more than anything going through a really great uh kind of resurgence it's been really fun to explore with it yeah it it it
1: usually takes like something will fall out of fashion for a while or feel like it'll it'll move aside for a new a new item a new textile a new idea until somebody else rediscovers it and brings it back in. And that seems to be what's happening.
2: Yeah, yeah so I want to know the, who those people are who go around hunting for these old textiles or, you know, just to find these textiles that may not be in the limelight.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And then so cool to see, you know, Cordura bringing in denim and kind of like looking at these, these hybrids of textiles, textiles that I never would have associated with each other. As a cyclist, the thought of having Cordura-enforced denim is, like, the greatest thing. <laughs> the girl, Doesn't it? You know, it's um, – I can't tell you how many jeans I go through as as an urban rider, you know? Um, yeah. You know, just the way that, that um, technologies are also enhancing some of these amazing, durable, classic textiles.
1: And it's one of those things
2: that makes such
1: sense that you're left thinking – Really, I thought that was already happening. <laughs> People yes. haven't been making denim out of Cordura. Um, doesn't that just make a ton of sense? And it—it's just something that should be. Yeah. But yeah. It, it takes somebody to put that together and say, "Oh no, uh, actually, it's not, and it should be." So let's do it. Yeah. There's a lot of that happening cool. now. Well, the other thing I was going to say too was that. What so many of you are doing in starting these new brands and doing them in ways that are just so authentic, you know, for lack of a better term, that to, to think back that a lot of the, pretty much all of the huge outdoor brands that are out there right now all started in the same way you know whether that's a good or bad thing it is what happens they all you know start with these ideas and um grow into different things and it's just time for new ideas it's time for the world has changed the sports have changed the lifestyles have changed and the ideas around what people want to create and do is has changed and it's just it's refreshing to see so many really inspiring brands doing what you love and creating beautiful things and doing it from the most real place and that's really what infiltrates the product and like you said it's it's about the experiences the product just helps you and it's it's great it's cool and you need it and you want really good quality things but it's about what you do with it
2: yeah it's so exhilarating to be a part of this time and this this swell in the outdoor industry and I love it. It's so inspiring. It's like everywhere we turn, people are just really pursuing their passions in such an amazing way and such a tangible way, you know, really making goods that relate so perfectly to their to lifestyle passions, to um, also, you know, Eth- ethical uh, and con- consumer and and environmental passions. Yeah. It feels like a, a pretty amazing time to kind of walk our talk as business owners. Yeah, it's it's so fun. It's it's diverse and it's bubbling with enthusiasm and so much inspiration. I also think that it's a time of so much collaboration. I think that also marks our generation uh, in a pretty specific way. Hmm. Today, I was kind of marveling, you know, um, having conversations on one platform between a distiller and the folks at Hip Camp and the folks at Stay Wild and the lead roaster from Stumptown Coffee that we're all sitting around. Getting excited to go on a trip all together to really bring out all of the things that we're super excited about is just, it's so fun. And there's, there's so many, I feel like there's so many, um, harmonious, but sometimes unconventional ways that we're looking to other kinds of businesses to really bring out the stories that we want to tell. And, and that collaboration is so fun.
1: That's so inspirational. So inspirational. Uh, I want to go. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you want to come? <laughs> Great people, you know. We yeah. know a lot of those people, too. It's just, it's, uh, it's just There's so many. It's like you said, you, you could just keep talking about them. Um, on, uh, to kind of wrap this up, I was going to say, yeah. now that you said so all these wonderful things, as, what, do you, what do you see are the biggest challenges as a small business owner in this growing, currently expanding, very rapidly outdoor industry? What, yeah. are, what are the challenges for Swift going forward?
2: Yeah, the challenges. The challenges are different every day. But I think in the big picture, I think it is very hard to find people who want to sew for a living. In Seattle, <laughs> um, it takes a very yeah a very different kind of person to um, really want to make a career path out of sewing these days, um, and and we're out there. Um, but when we start to speak about the growth of a company and expansion and and scale, we are we're really curious you know, where that staffing will come from. Um, So that's one. Maybe a little bit more specific to SWIFT, the scales that we've chosen, I think are so vibrant for so many reasons. And it can be so challenging um, to work in the globalized market. We can do our best to tell our story and, tell folks why we've made the decisions we've made or, about um our manufacturing process and the scale that we've that we've committed to um but the reality is that we manufacture out of the heart of a pretty expensive west coast city and the rest of the industry the vast majority of the industry does not and really rests on very, very, very different margins. Um, The margins that afford creating textiles and materials overseas, manufacturing, and then bringing back overseas, back home for distribution in in the United States, and still having uh, exceptional margins, that that still ends up being likely, you know, Mar- in terms of margins, more profitable than the scale that we operate on. And in a lot of ways, we see that as a very broken system. But on my fiery days, I am full of conviction. And I feel like we can do it at this scale and that it's very important to do it at this scale. And the days that I've been working really long hours and I feel a little bit deflated, I look at the bigger picture of commerce and global market and consumerism. And I'm like, how can we, how can we swim against this? This is Mm -hmm. crazy. So I think, I think that, um, that's a big challenge. You know, it, it sounds so, so strange to bring it back to the agriculture uh, background that I have, but I do think that my pursuit, my interest in small scale agriculture kind of the the tenets there have absolutely been brought into Swift Industries. And what I was really interested in with small-scale agriculture was really looking at how we retain money in our communities, how we look at the carrying capacity of a piece of land and really work against this inclination that we have that's market-driven to max that out for, you know, every single nutrient that's in that soil Mm -hmm. and those things are still so much a part of how we've structured swift it's just now that we now we've moved into a very very different market
1: yeah and i wanted to bring out one of the tenets of your working philosophy from your website have a plan and plan not to stick with it and that seems
2: to (laughs) sum it up yeah we i mean i think Um, if, if not anything else, that is what life has taught us. And, and that's what adventuring has taught us. Um, you know, if it's predictable, it's not an adventure.
1: Well, that's what we have for you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I appreciate it. It's, um, I, it's an awesome opportunity. It's so great to be able to, um, I don't know. Just reflect on on Swift.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Martina. We really appreciate you taking your time on a Friday night to to hang out with us online.
2: You too, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Really appreciate it.
0: This podcast is a project of Structure Event, the creative conference for the active outdoor and urban design industry. For more information about the podcast or the conference, check out our website at StructureEvent.com.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.